Well, welcome everybody. Um, I'm Matthew Gwyther from Jericho and a big warm welcome to our guest today, Professor Helen Thompson from Cambridge University. Helen is a professor of political economy in the Department of Politics and International Studies and a fellow of Clare College where she's joining us from today, despite the fact she got on the wrong train and ended up in Luton rather than Cambridge from London earlier on. But we're here to talk about her brilliant book, which is called Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Um, and it, it, it has an endorsement on the back from one of the country's most beloved historians, Tom Holland, who said to read Thompson on the history of the past century is to see it in a sudden sharp definition. It's akin to looking through glass after the window cleaner has been. So there it is. Um, make sure you go off and get a copy after the conversation we're having with Helen now. Um, now it's now about five o'clock. We've got Helen until six. And with the events of today, I, I couldn't possibly let you go, Helen, without asking for your, your take on the extraordinary events in British politics over the last week or so. So I suppose one of the ways of kicking it off maybe, if Boris was the answer, um, what was the question? Well, I don't think that um, Boris's ascendancy to the Conservative Party leadership in the first place and then the Conservative success in the 2019 general election can at all be separated from Brexit. I mean, where the, the general election was concerned, it's not the only story that was going on. There was a Corbyn story, um, obviously, too. Um, but my take is, is that there wasn't really any, there weren't any really any illusions in the Conservative Party, in the Parliamentary Conservative Party, about who Boris Johnson was, if we go back to the summer of 2019. Um, but the Conservative Party was facing existential annihilation. You know, his election to the leadership came, you know, in the um, weeks after, or the months after, a couple of months after, the Conservatives getting 9% of the vote in the European parliamentary um, elections. And if there wasn't a way in which, um, to, to use that phrase that Dominic's Cummings coined, that Brexit could get done, then the Conservative Party was finished and there wasn't, it didn't seem a way out of the parliamentary impasse that there was over Brexit. So he was the roll of the dice. I mean, that's the way that I always saw it. He was the, there wasn't any guarantee that he was going to make it work either. And indeed, I think that there was, perhaps considerable scepticism as whether he was going to be any better at dealing with the parliamentary logjam um, than Theresa May was, but by one means or another, he found a way out. And that was the basis of the Conservatives election success in, in December, 2019. But I, I don't think there was ever um, any real belief that he was going to have some kind of character transformation as a result of being Prime Minister, he was the price of Brexit. Uh, and getting Brexit, getting the United Kingdom out of the European Union after the referendum um, was necessary for the Conservative Party to continue to exist in any form which we would um, recognise. And now that that's achieved in the sense that the UK did leave the European um, 
union and some kind of trade agreement was negotiated. Um, the fact that Johnson is exactly the same character as he was before means there's nothing any longer to compensate for all mm. those deficiencies. And indeed, it seems that the longer that he stayed in office, the harder that Johnson found it in order to have any kind of structure around him that controlled for the chaotic forces that seemed to have run through him. It was, it's interesting. I mean, it, Camilla Cavendish was saying yesterday on the television that he was a, he was a, acknowledged to be a great campaigner and he got them over the line with the vote in 2016. But anybody who knew him knew that he sort of managerial, his, his leadership qualities when it actually came to getting anything done were, were lacking. So if, if you were doing your job in 20, 30 years time and teaching the history of the last five years, what do you, where do you think he sort of fits in? Where are the kind of parallels in our political history, which, which, which might shed some light and understanding on what he represents and what we've been through? I'm not sure that there really is a parallel um, with him. I mean, I can see why some people want to make the comparison with Disraeli um, in the sense of um, a, a complex personality who was at quite some distance in many ways from um, his party um, and succeeded in some unorthodox ways. Um, but I think that's very unfair to Disraeli in the end <laughs> to make um, you know, this um, comparison um, because you know Disraeli was was capable of um, leading a number of um, governments and he was capable of holding the Conservative Party together after all the fallout um, from the, the repeal of the the Corn Laws, the divisions of the Conservative Party in terms of what Peel um, had um, done. So I find it very hard to find any body to compare him to, or really any period, I think, to um, compare him to. I think it's probably better just trying to understand it as there were these forces around Brexit that had been building up for a long time, um, that didn't mean that we were necessarily going to leave the European Union as a result of a referendum in 2016, but some kind of reckoning was going to happen in the years, I would say, probably in a five-year period between 2016 and sort of where we are now. I mean, it might have been different in the world as it turned out, if the pandemic had still been there, if you're seeing in this kind of factual world, but at some point a reckoning was um, coming. It came... I think speedier than it might otherwise have done because uh, of um, David Cameron's thinking and calculation. Um, but I think Johnson was caught up in it all from the beginning in a quite passive way. Uh, and so I don't necessarily really buy the idea that it was his campaigning in 2016 um, that got um, Brexit over the line. Yeah. I think he yeah. was much more from the start a vessel than an agent yeah. um, in what happened. And you could see that in a way, in terms of what then happened after the referendum immediately, is that you know, he didn't get his act together. 
he sent obviously Michael Gove into such a sense, sense of despair about the prospect of Johnson then being prime minister that Gove sort of, you know, metaphorically stabbed him in the back and said he was going to run himself. And then if you look at what happened when he was foreign secretary, um, when it became clear that Theresa May was completely changing tack, he didn't resign until after David Davis had done. It didn't look like he was really mobilising resistance to ratifying um, Theresa May's withdrawal treaty. In the end, he voted for, I think, on the third um, time. The answer became Boris Johnson, so to speak, because of what happened in those European parliamentary elections and the yeah. complete desperation of the mm. um, Conservative Party and the fact that he was a chancellor in a situation in which there seemed only very, very risky things to do. I think was why enough sentiment in the parliamentary party got mm. okay if we've got any chance at all of getting out of this he's the only guy and it wasn't because he was capable in many ways it was the chance element the chancellor element of it the, the man who was willing to take risks because yeah. risk taking was the only way in which um a conservative government could take the united kingdom out of the um european union but pretty clearly it wasn't going to be a, a stable way of governing yeah. And to the extent there was some possibility, of, if you like, of, of containing Johnson, reforming, not reforming him, but sort of keeping him caged in, sort of putting some kind of order around the chaos, that seemed to rest with Cummings, who's got his obviously his own sort of chaotic tendencies because he likes blowing things up. Um, but once Cummings was out, and particularly once not only Cummings was out, but actually then Johnson turned on Cummings and seemed to be briefing the newspapers against him, then you let loose the force of Cummings you know, in the proceedings, he's clearly wanted to destroy the Johnson premiership for some for some um, time now. So I think that there has been a certain inevitability um, to it. I still think that you need some explanation of like why it was this particular moment. We probably yeah. need to take account of the by-elections yeah. and, and just a sense that it wasn't hardly five minutes since the last crisis before we went to the next crisis. Yeah. The fact that he was sending, you know, ministers out, you know, inadequately briefed or not told the truth in order to try to defend um, him. But in that sense, that was that was who he was from the that was who he was from the start. But if we step back from the character of the individual and look at, you know, the broader the broader sort of sociological movement. So one of the really interesting parts of your book is the study of, of, of democracy and the people's relationship with it. And you write the result of the Brexit referendum where 52% of UK voters opted for leave while more than 70% of members of parliament supported Remain revealed a serious gulf between enough citizens and enough of those who represented them to constitute a democratic crisis and that in a sense is the heart of your book isn't it it's about a it's about a disillusion with with with, with democracy as well people having a sense in which it's they don't feel they're being heard and even if they're being heard you know things are not going in the direction in which they 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 want to hence the, the whole left behind and and leveling up agendas so when do you think that sort of dissatisfaction with the democratic process began in, in the UK? That's a really interesting question, um, Matthew. I mean, in terms of the ways in which I make the argument in the book, I concentrate a lot, obviously, on the question of these constitutionalised EU treaties 
and the ways in which that they constrain democratic politics. And I wanted to do that both because I think it's a pretty important part of the story of Brexit and some of the other developments in European, um, some European countries' politics in the 2010s, but also because it's a common thread that runs through um, the disruption in France and Italy, Spain, um, Germany, although it manifested in a different way, I think, in um, Germany. But I don't think that the EU is you know, all the story. Uh, and in the second chapter of the democratic politics part of the book, obviously I spent quite a bit of time on what the fallout of the changes to the world economy in the 1970s were, and particularly having more financialized economies and the return of international financial markets and the ways in which that constrained government's economic options, including ultimately, though not, I would say really significantly until the 2000s perhaps, who that they could tax. I mean, that's a kind of like bubbling issue that like comes um, to the comes to, um, to the fore. So I think that from the 70s, the ways in which the world economy was changing, as I say, both in terms of international capital markets acting as really quite sharp constraints, and the fact that increasingly um, Western governments were quite keen to use what came to be called globalization, um, particularly the integration of China into the world economy to bring a source of be a source of cheap labor, that these all had sort of drip, drip, drip effects on democratic politics, and particularly on that idea um, that there was such a thing as a democratic nation, and that as a democratic citizen, you belong to the democratic nation, and then in some sense, you know, the representatives. Um, the politicians as representatives were there um, in order um, to represent a collective identity and a set of and a, a sense of collective um, purpose um, in the world, and that in belonging, in being a democratic citizen, you had some rights that you could claim from those representatives, whether it be you know the right. To a job or you know, in terms of like um, full employment or to um, welfare from the cradle um, to the grave and as all that eroded I think uh, quite a lot of trust in democratic politics when it's not the only thing and I think I think that the corruption uh, I think this is particularly true perhaps in the United States the sense that there was uh, a elite um, that in some sense themselves benefited from democratic policy, yep. particularly in the US because of the amount of money that it takes to run for um, office, office, that that sort of solidified that sense in which that there was a class of people who were the representatives and then there was a class of people who were the represent supposedly the represented, but they weren't actually being represented. They were just being used in some sense. Yeah as part of democratic political competition between elites. Now, that's too simplistic account sure. of like what actually has gone on in democratic politics since the 1970s. But there's enough in it, sure. that, particularly that can be used by other politicians who want to mobilise the grievances yep. of people who feel disaffected themselves to try to win power. And that's the kind of politician that I think that Absolutely. Trump was. Right. But do, do you think if, if there was this developing itch, if you like, from the sort of 60s and 70s, onwards then there was ever any possibility or there is a possibility going forward that 
but Brexit can scratch it. Is there is there anything about what what Brexit means that we that that, that those people who voted in favour of it um, will actually benefit from it in the long run or not? Well, I think that what's true. Uh, I mean, I think that the economic questions are pretty difficult because the short term, you know, like costs are, you know, not insignificant um, at all. Um, and the the world in which Brexit entered, so to speak, was one that I don't think anybody who voted whatever way that they voted in 2016 could have got their heads around you know, the, the pandemic and now um, the war uh, and the energy crisis, I would say, as well. I mean, I think that what you can say, though, is, is that shifted in British politics, and I'm stressing now the politics part of it, um, is that there was a whole set of voters who, you know, largely been taken for granted by the Labour Party, uh, who the Conservatives weren't bothered to try to compete for their votes because they just thought that they were Labour votes. To some extent, UKIP was trying to appeal um, to them. Um, but that what we saw in the 2019 general election was a political contest over consistencies that really had just been taken to be insignificant to the outcome of general elections yeah. before. Suddenly it mattered, you know, who was going to win Warrington or mm -hmm. you know, who was going to win um, the Durham seats, um, um, say. And that in itself, I think, is a shift in political power. Now, you can ask the question, well, does that compensate for the economic problems of um, Brexit? Perhaps not, but we, people can take people can take different views of that. But I think it meant that certain um, political questions that had just been depoliticized, certain parts of the country that had just been treated as electorally relevant because they always voted, you know, like one way. Yeah. Um, that wasn't true um, any longer, uh, and the politicians had to rethink the ways in which they were doing democratic politics and out of that came the leveling up agenda and again you can say that there's lots of issues about the way in which you know it, it, how, how much of it is coherent in terms of strategy how much of it is action rather than um, rhetoric but the fact that it's there in the way in which it is is a product mm -hmm. of brexit um, we've got a question from one of our viewers ethna o'leary she says as the extremes of the political spectrum continue to polarize can can democracy actually survive, or do you think electorates continue to deliver minority governments as a way of ensuring nothing much actually changes? I think different things are going on in different democracies um, in this um, respect. Um, I think if you uh, look at an, a number of um, European um, countries, and I would have said actually um, certainly in the period when, period when I was writing the book that Germany was falling into this category. Yeah. It was becoming quite difficult to form the coalitions that were necessary um, to govern. I mean, think about the length of time it took for there to be a German government, not after this last general election, but the one before that. In Spain, they had substantial periods, uh, you know, a long time for a coalition to emerge. In Italy, you, you get these coalitions that emerge after an election and then a few years in uh, they fall apart and a technocratic government yes. has formed that's what we've got at the moment obviously with Mario Draghi and then you have a, like a backlash mm -hmm. against this because people object to in the end to non-elected politicians taking these consequential um, 
decisions. Um, that isn't really what we've got in the UK, yeah. I would say, um, though there's clearly issues with the ability to have executive government in Northern Ireland. Um, I think that what we've got in the UK is, is different than the others because we've so now got the politics of the union, the UK union, but particularly obviously the Anglo-Scottish union, like running through our democratic politics. The fact that um, it looks quite hard for the Labour Party to form a majority government um, so long as the SNP is as strong as it, yeah. as, as it um, is. Uh, and there's no prospect at the moment of there being anybody other than the SNP in power um, in um, Edinburgh. And in some sense, the Conservatives being in power in Westminster and the SNP being in power in um, Edinburgh, that reinforces them both being in power. And, and then we're stuck in this like um, impasse. And I don't think that that's like in other countries' um, politics. I think in the US that um, there's a lot of different things going on. Um, Obviously, there's the issue, which I spent quite a bit of time in the book on, on whether there's sufficient losers consent in presidential um, elections. And can there be losers consent when people kind of have the kind of fears that they do about Trump, uh, where he's so shown that he had no losers consent at all you know, in the last presidential election and was willing to do extraordinarily reckless things because he wouldn't accept um, defeat. Um, and then that's though playing out or not though, but that's playing out in the context of the American um, Republic when you've got a court that makes the kind of consequential decisions that the Supreme Court um, does and a constitution that's constantly um, having to grapple or set of constitutional issues are constantly um, focused on the relationship between democratic politics and federal um, yeah. politics. And some of that makes, I think, governance government in in the United States quite difficult. I mean, it's not difficult, I think, um, to see that it's quite likely that after the midterm elections um, that the Democrats won't have a congressional majority, but there'll still be a Democratic president and we're going to get some, we're going to back to some impasse. So I think that there is a problem as to whether Democratic politics in these countries can produce executive government, but it's not a problem that's in all of the different countries. And the sure. form that that problem takes is different depending mm. upon the political circumstances of each of those countries. What about the role of business and money then in democracy? Because we're certainly hearing at the moment with the whole ESG movement, which the more enlightened, if you like, businesses have, have, have bought into indeed, you know, if they're going to be investable, they have to be ticking all those, mm. all those particular boxes. And I know many people within business regard themselves as sort of more, more competent, you know, you, over the last few weeks, you know, I could count the number of times I've heard someone say, well, if I ran my business in the way in which this government's being run at the moment, I'd have been chucked out years ago. But what do you what do you think? I mean, you quoted Jimmy Carter in the book in 2015, where he said that America had been a great country because of its political system, but now it's just an oligarchy that functions with unlimited political bribery. Um, so where are the dangers and tensions of, of influence of, of capital over democracy at the moment? Well, 
I, yeah, I think that you can see the most clearly in the United States um, because of the fact that it requires so much money for any candidate to um, run for office or for most candidates anyway to um, run um, for um, office and the people who can provide that money are largely um, rich people uh, and that uh, they will often do so now under the through the context of the corporation in which that they um, work um, for um, and you know, the amount of money that's spent on lobbying um, you know in the in, in the United States is phenomenal I don't mean to suggest there's not problems with lobbying in European countries too sure. but it, the mm -hmm. scale um, of, of of it um, is such and that's the kind of um, activities that lead, led Carter to say the thing and to say the thing that he did about American um, the public being an oligarchy now and indeed you know, Bernie Sanders used quite much the same language and he was obviously trying to change that by saying look I'm not going to take these big donations um, from um, people um, I think that um, you know, there was always considerable business influence over democratic politics by these kind of means, but the scale of it now is considerably more than I think it was, say, 40, 50 years ago. And in some sense, I would say that the fallout of the 70s was quite a watershed um, in that. I think the question of the, you know, the businessman, so to speak, or the business person, so mm. to speak, wanting to be the politician which in a way was the sort of shtick that trump was running yeah. you know like in in 2016 look i know how to get deals done these guys are hopeless whatever um i mean even leaving aside you know, the nature of trump's character and um, personality i think that you could see that from quite clearly that businessmen business people i keep saying i should say business people don't know how to run governments um because running a business and running government are not the same thing political leadership is quite a distinct if you like human activity and it's not yeah. the same as business um activity and it's not the case that you can simply say okay i want this 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 and that done and issue orders and then that's what materializes at the government level there's a bureaucracy uh that uh has been there for a long um time uh, and there'll be plenty of impediments that come from that bureaucracy against radical to sorry to um radical um change but also people have to be persuaded enough voters have got to be persuaded that what you're doing um is in some sense legitimate and that they're willing to support it now you can do unpopular things for some period of time mm -hmm. um but you've still got to reconcile enough of your the, the voters who voted for you in the first place to that by the time the next election yeah. um, comes about so it seems to me that politics is just a a much harder thing to do well yeah. than to run a business um, well. And that the trans, if you like to use that language, that it's not transferable skills yeah. from one to the other. No, I mean, it's it's the art of the possible, isn't it? And if you look at the business people who've gone into politics, many of them have just, you know, retired either hurt or with intense frustration yeah. that it doesn't work, kind of moving levers and then the ship of state going in the direction that they were used used to if they were running a FTSE 100 company it is a it's a far yeah. kind of subtler business isn't it absolutely yeah so 
let's talk about energy and, and oil because, um, you know, we were saying earlier, I can remember doing my O-levels by candlelight in the 1970s. Do you, um, with the winter approaching, do you, do you think, well, certainly kids in Germany doing their Abitur, are they going to be doing the same thing? I mean, how, how grim is the prospect looking there of serious shortages as we get to... I mean, I think that you can already see that uh, in Germany that the problems are mounting, you know, already. And we're in, you know, July. There was a story earlier in the week um, essentially about the possibility of hot water rationing in Hamburg. I think that um, it was the government's already asking people, you know, to take shorter showers, turn down air conditioning, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, um, Germany uh, has a gas supply, a pretty severe gas supply um, problem yep. um, because Putin is making sure that the gas supply coming through the pipelines um, from Russia is reduced and Germany isn't in a position because it doesn't have any liquid natural gas ports and it doesn't right yep. now have long-term liquid natural gas contracts with um, the producing um, countries um, to compensate for the pipeline gas um, with seaborne gas. And even if the logistics were there, it's much, much more um, expensive. Yeah. And I think that Germany's got acute problems at the moment already, but it, this could well be a European phenomenon um, by the time we get to the winter. Um, some of this will depend on things about which nobody can humanly can control, like the weather. Um, like, and it's not just a question of like how cold it's going to be um, in Europe this winter, but it will be by September what the hurricane season looks like in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, because that's where American liquid natural gas is exported yeah. um, from. And you take out, you have hurricane damage um, to a couple of those, or even just one of those ports in September. And this crisis could, you know, September's not the winter. So yeah. there's quite a lot. Of, I would say it's, it's, it's pretty difficult. And if we want a comparison with the 70s, I would say um, that, in the 70s, the underlying energy problem was around oil and the price of oil. In this country, um, there was a secondary problem because of the coal miners' strike, which went over then into electricity. Um, and that's where the sitting around in the darkness, uh, as I did well, a little bit younger than you, I remember that too. Um, came from but gas was still much less used as an energy source yeah. in the 70s than it is um, now and what we're seeing now are oil supply problems gas supply problems and to some extent coal supply um, problems as well certainly very expensive um, coal so this is going right across the energy range which um, which it wasn't in in the 70s the second thing i would say is is that in the 70s this was predominantly um, a western affair because high energy consumption was predominantly Western. It was yeah. only really Japan and Singapore uh, of non-Western countries, in, including Australia, Canada, yeah. New Zealand, et cetera, in, in Western. It was only really Japan and Singapore um, that were significant high level energy um, consumers um, then. And even then they weren't consuming at the same level. Now, that's just not true. That's not the world yeah. in which we, we, we live. Asian energy consumption is at least as important as, as European and North American. 
um, energy consumption. China had an energy crisis last winter, um, both from issues on the coal side, issues on the gas side, led to electricity um, rationing. Um, so uh, it's not that um, European countries um, can simply say, okay, we just have to pay more and more and more. That actually, particularly where gas is concerned, in direct competition for the physical supply of liquid natural gas, seaborne gas, that, that is with Asian countries, particularly yeah. China um, and um, India. And that's territory that we've not really been in. That I'd say that we've not really been in that's before. True. The other thing that, one of the other really interesting things that you write about the effects of globalization, you write the accumulative effect of more internationalized and financialized economies from the 70s terminated economic nationhood mm. and i wonder to what extent you see that reversing at the moment with the movement towards on shoring i mean i was doing an interview the other day with a guy from salomon the ski and um running shoe manufacturers they make kind of you know 150 quid shoes for running up mountains and things and one of the things they're trying to do at the moment is bringing they're starting a factory in the French Alps. They're, they're bringing it back from China and Vietnam because, because, you know, they're probably, you know, it's just about feasible now. And also the carbon footprint of a pair of trainers going backwards and forwards all over the world is not good. Do you, do you think realistically that that has a chance of success for us here in the West? Are we going to see a resurgence of manufacturing that we've outsourced to China for the last 30, 40 years? I think we're going to see some successful um, reshoring for the reasons that you um, say. Um, and I think that in some sense, the, the rising energy costs of transportation, um, on which, put it differently, globalization rested in some sense on cheap energy costs for transportation. And once you change that, I think you change something quite important about the nature of the world economy and the incentives um, in, the, in the world um, economy. Um, and I think that the pandemic showed the um, crucial importance in moments of crisis of resilience and that resilience matters as well as efficiency um, of production and that we've had enough shocks, so to speak, over the last few years for people to understand that these aren't just shocks that happen like once every few hundred years or even once every hundred years, that they can happen more regularly yeah. than that. And that puts a significantly higher premium on, on resilience than was there in the heyday of the optimism of the 90s or the early um, 2000s. I think though that there are certain sectors, particularly in the high tech sectors, particularly like chips, semiconductors, that actually starting from scratch effectively there, because you have countries that are so dominant, like Taiwan, you know, like with like with semiconductors, um, that the amount of time it would take for any individual country to try to build up a capacity, let alone the fact they're all trying to do it at the same time and compete. That's where I think it gets a lot. A, a lot lot harder and i think you can see some examples and they're not even so high tech as that already where the going's got a bit tough so that the initially the biden administration carried on with the trump 
administration's policy of tariffs on solar panels yeah. from China and has backed away um, from that. Uh, and obviously, part of Biden's rhetoric, green rhetoric initially, was about a green growth strategy so that um, addressing the climate crisis and a green growth strategy went together. So you'd use it as part of rebuilding the manufacturing capacity of Western mm -hmm. economies. And here he is on the solar panels looking like he's giving up quite, yeah. quite quickly. Um, so I think the aspiration will be there. I can certainly see it in a number um, of um, sectors. I think that food is an area where there'll be increasing concern about resilience over cheapness and efficiency. Um, but I think it will be far from across the board. And I think there are certain sectors that it's going to be really quite difficult. It's interesting, isn't it, that the, the degree of economic antipathy towards China is probably more developed in the States than here at the moment. I mean, I think there's a kind of an ambivalence and you've got, you know, some political outliers in, you know, like Ian Duncan Smith, who, you know, really rev it up. But if, if one goes to the States, where I was a couple of months ago, it really surprises you the extent that they're now regarded, you know, as a as a um, as an economic enemy. I mean, I think the, the one place I don't think that that's true is where finance is concerned, that mm -hmm. if you that actually there's been um, more Wall Street integration with um, Chinese economy in the last few years, I think, than there was there was before. But that, I mean, on the whole, I agree um, is that um, at some point during the Trump presidency, and I think Trump here was more symptom than cause, um, that the basic bipartisan position became China is a strategic rival, um, that the main way in which that or the, 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 the place where the China has advantages that we wish that it didn't have is economically, like say, you know, manufacturing um, solar panels, getting ahead on electric vehicles, and that we need to do something about this yeah. because it has geopolitical um, implications. And as I say, I think that although Trump sort of ran with that as his platform, in a way, in 2016, or a pretty important part of his platform anyway, once he was in office, that actually it became clear that it was quite a wide spectrum of American political opinion yeah. that occupied the same place where um, where China um, was concerned. I mean, I suppose in this country, although one would be chided for it by certain um, nationalists, We've got used to a declinist argument, haven't we, that we've been going steadily downhill since 1914. But um, in America, I don't think they've quite got to that point yet. I mean, they are still, you know, the dominant economic and um, military force on, on the planet. But how do you think they might have to reconcile themselves to stopping being top dog as, as, as time goes on? Well, I think the, the interesting thing here that I try to talk about in disorder at times is the ways in which different aspects of American power are going in different directions. So if we look at 
American military power and particularly American military capacity on land. Yeah. Then what we see, you know, um, is that it's in decline uh, and it's had you know, these set of failures in the Middle East and then in um, Afghanistan, um, ultimately, um, as well. I mean, you, you can argue about like what the cause uh, of these military failures are, but in the end, they are stories of military failures. Yeah. American military power not being able to do what the politicians in Washington wanted yeah. um, to do um, politically. But if you look at American financial power, American monetary power, particularly the uh, influence of the Federal Reserve Board, yeah. it's much higher now than it was prior to yeah. 2008. Yeah. If you look at the 2010s, and this is less clear, I think, in the last couple of years, but in the 2010s, American energy power greatly grew yeah. uh, because America became, the United States became the world's largest oil and gas producer yeah. again. Um, and this was not the position that it was in in the 90s or the um, 2000s. So I think one of the difficulties, both for understanding the world in which we live and the ways in which Americans might grapple with the nature of American geopolitical power, is that it's a really quite complex story. Yeah. Uh, and so just simply saying that they've got to get used to decline yeah. doesn't capture the fact that they've actually there's actually quite a lot of there's quite a lot of power and the power that can be deployed. What they've struggled with, as I say, is the ability to impose any kind of political order in other countries yeah. where they've gone in with military intervention. And also, I mean, I suppose it, you know, would you count big tech in which they're completely yeah. dominant as being? I think that's, soft, a, that's a good point, Matthew. Yeah, I think you could absolutely power. say that too. I mean, there's obviously, China has obviously got some tech power, I would yeah. say as well, and that's partly obviously what frightened the American security establishment, if you can call it that, um, about China's, like, so for instance, the whole Huawei story is, yeah. is clearly about the relationship between um, Chinese tech power and the geopolitical um, consequences of yeah. that. I wonder in a, in a way if your book is is quite classical in that it's an argument for restraint against excess, isn't it? You know, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I'm not a classicist, but the image we have of the end of the, you know, the Roman Empire is them, you know, just degenerating into decadent behaviours and everything sort of collapsing. Um, and you say each form of government is destroyed by its own excess. The only way to check the cycle and allow for a long middle in what Polybius called the state equilibrium is to balance the three positive forms of government, kingship, aristocracy, and democracy, and have that sort of imbalance. So, yeah. I mean, if, if we wanted to go back to something more balanced and less fractured than we've got mm. now here in the UK, what, what should we be trying to do? Well, I think that my sort of diagnosis, or part of my diagnosis, I should say, of the problems of democratic politics in the Western countries now is the problem of what I'm calling aristocratic um, excess. Yeah. Um, is that um, there's too much power and too much wealth concentrated in too few um, hands, uh, and the democratic claims that are part of democracy uh, are diluted at the expense 
um, of the more aristocratic claims. And I would include in the aristocratic, not just the literal, you know, aristocrat, arist the aristocracy of wealth, yeah. but the aristocracy of technocrats as well. Um, um, and the sense uh, that, um, and I think there are certain particular issues, you know, in the European Union um, about um, this, where essentially technocratic claims diluted di democratic claims. And that isn't to say that yeah. technocracy has got no part to play in democratic politics, but it's about sure. the balance. And I think that in some sense, democracies, we've got to try to find ways of like rebalancing um, them. We've got to um, um, make the democratic part of them more important again. But, and this is a big but, um, we don't want to fall off over into the problem of democratic excess, yeah. where you get a lot, you know, um, kind of demagoguery, uh, uh, sure, appeals yeah. to um, nativism, um, and you get um, a, a situation in which individuals' rights, yeah. um, which are obviously always in tension with democratic claims, are being overwhelmed by democratic claims. Sure. But if we look at the EU, I mean, are you optimistic at the, that the EU is being sufficiently smart and sensitive towards these threats? Or do you think that our departure is the first sort of you know, brick to come out of the wall and eventually the whole thing might come tumbling down? I mean, I don't think the whole thing's going to come tumbling down. I mean, I think that the, the, the biggest, if you like now, um, disintegrative potential actually comes on the geopolitical side rather than on this um, side. And they come, and, and in some sense, actually, they come from the energy issues yeah. as well, because each of the, mostly of the members of the European Union have got something different there's something a little bit different about their energy predicament than the other one if you see what i mean yeah. like germany's problems are not france's problems and germany france's problems are not italy's um problems and given how central energy is to economies when there's not unity there in the european union it's got the potential i think to be quite destabilizing for it mm -hmm. um i would say though in terms of the democracy aspects of the eu um, question. I don't think that Brexit um, was the prelude to a set of other member states leaving. I never thought yeah. that from the start. I think there's a quite specific set of issues for Britain. Yeah. Uh, and the heart of them uh, was the nature of our, or the nature of the relationship between our constitutional system and EU membership, sure. and the problems that treaties posed. And on the other hand, us not being in the Eurozone but having the offshore financial centre of the Eurozone in yeah, London and the tensions sure. of that um, cause. So I think there was quite British specific explanation um, of Brexit. And I, mean, I don't I think, a, yeah. I mean, I suppose one of the other analyses would be that, 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 any, that any country that was thinking about getting out would look at the example of the screw up we've made of it and think, yeah, and you you see, know, the thing that's is, the last thing we want to do, go and give that a try and end yeah. up in the state that they have. I think that there are two things here. First of all, that a country that any state's in the euro is a whole different proposition. Yeah. Um, because you'd have to leave the euro and you go back to denominating debt that had been in the euro into a national currency. That's mind-bogglingly difficult, I think, um, for any for any yeah. country to contemplate. And you can see that in what happened in the Greek crisis. Yeah. When Greece had to accept. When or Cyprus, the Greek then prime minister in 2015, accepted really humiliating terms yeah. um, for that third bailout because he knew what the alternative was, was going to be even more hellish yeah. 
than what he was having to um, agree um, to. I think the other thing then, which is just about the European Union itself, as opposed to the Eurozone member states, is, is that what Brexit showed is what a difficult procedure Article 50 is yeah. for any state that um, yeah. wants to um, leave. It's really at a very serious disadvantage um, when it comes to negotiating the, yeah. the way out because of the way in which the, 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 the time period sure. um, works. And I think that nobody perhaps had, or perhaps some people did, but it wasn't commonplace understanding of like what Article 50 would be like for yeah. any departing state. And now it's been demonstrated where the power lies in that process. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it was probably restricted to, a, you know, a few a few dozen Brits who actually really understood, mm. the, the, you know, how how Europe worked, the, the degree of difficulty that we were going to find ext extricating ourselves from the price that had to be paid. And because nobody had ever tried it before, then th then we were just taking a step into the unknown, weren't we? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I think that there were uh, the, the the you know the real reluctance to try to to break the not break that's the wrong way of putting it to try to change the power relationship by bringing the security question into play, mm -hmm. like really trying to get at the question of like, well, why should say a Baltic member state care more about what happened in Northern Ireland than they would care about? Britain as a member of NATO making a security commitment to those um, states. Yeah. Um, that, I think, was a failure on the British government's um, part of not being able to see that you had to find a way to join up all these questions. And you can see the consequences of the fact that we've not been able, that wasn't, that, that, that there, are, uh, there are difficulties that arise from that, like with the Ukraine um, with the Ukraine um, war um, yeah. now. You know, it is a problem that we've ended up not with a formalized security relationship with the European Union countries, even though we're in NATO in the yeah. military alliance in which the European Union depends for its security, in which a number of individual countries depend really for their um, security because they're on the they're on the um, front um, line. And I think you can see then also you know, the limitations of Article 50. Um, if you were like trying to say, well, how would you deal with a major country wanting to leave and then think of the whole big picture about what that meant for the whole continent. Sure. EU, NATO, problem of Russia. Yeah. Then none of this works very well. But there wasn't there wasn't the and sometimes I would say the imagination on either side to like find a way of imagination and will on the other side to find a way of like trying to grapple with the problem as a whole. Yeah. We've got a question from Jonathan Haskell. He's he says it isn't the answer to the lobbying of politicians, and I suppose the sort of you know the bought influence of business to take decisions away from politicians, those who could be bought, e.g., you know, to independent central banks and regulators. Mm. Would you be in favour of that, or would you be worried about the excessive influence of business that would inevitably be exerted via that route? Yeah, I mean, I think that that um, the problem of like. Um, saying that the way out is technocracy, yeah. which is really what that way out is, yeah. to say that authority should go to central banks and to um, regulators, is that it brings the problem of aristocratic excess back in its um, yeah. other um, form. Um, I mean, I think that the, 
the only way out um or I, I think they just have to be you know like really strict rules um about lobbying and i think that it's really important for us to get to grips with the revolving door between the democratic political world um and the the business world i mean i mean you know we're going to get another example of it i'm sure with like boris johnson and you know he's not going to spend the rest of his life twiddling his fingers and he's no longer um prime minister um we can all look forward to that shakespeare book now yeah <laughs> and you you can see that with some of the issues that david cameron got caught up with that came out during the yeah. um pandemic and this this stuff i think is really you know debilitating for democratic politics it does a lot to destroy um trust yeah um and i think that um this is a is a place where we just have to um be a lot tougher about what former politicians can do um in terms of earning money when they right. leave office right well i mean talking about kind of you know technocratic solutions to things why do you think Starmer hasn't had more cut through? I mean, he seems measured, sensible, competent. I mean, it, it isn't, couldn't we do with a dose of that at the moment in contrast to what we've had over the last few years? I mean, I think that doing, what's he doing wrong? I think that competence has always um, got some claim to um, uh, on electoral appeal. Um, whatever party people would prefer they most people would prefer a competent government over chaotic yeah um government and we certainly had a you know a heavy dose of chaos um under um under johnson i think that one of the difficulties that corbyn sorry starmer ran into um from the start though is the is the brexit issue um i think that it was a push given what happened in 2019, for Labour to turn to the architect of its second referendum policy as its leader. I'm mm. not saying that there wasn't a way of making it work for Starmer, but I think that he was starting from a, a more difficult position than was um, acknowledged, um, because he was in some sense the symbol, the strongest symbol that there was of the, a Labour Party that had started saying it was committed to accepting the referendum result and then moved into a, a different direction and paid a significant electoral um, price for that. I know it wasn't the only issue that was going on in sure. 2019, but it sure. was it was one of the issues um, that was um, going um, on. And I think Starmer also um, has struggled to find a story to tell about what the point of his Labour Party or the Labour Party under his leadership um, is. So although competence is necessary, it's not yeah. sufficient. Yeah. Uh, and there has to be some bigger story that hangs it all together, some sense sure. of collective purpose that's being um, generated. Sure. Um, and I don't really see strong evidence. No. Um, of um that i see you know he starts seems to start in certain directions in terms of bringing it all together but yeah. it never seems really doesn't doesn't really seem to last and so i still think you'd be hard pushed to say okay 
this is the purpose. This is what the purpose of a new Labour government um, would be. And then separate from that, there's a Scottish question. And that will be true, sure. whoever the party leader for sure. Labour is, because until something shifts in yeah. Scotland against the SNP, then um, Labour is running up a hill. Yeah. I mean, so your book, finally, we've got only two, three minutes left. It's called Disorder. And it does paint a you know a fairly grim picture of you know the fractures and and what we're up against at the moment. But I mean, do do you think there was ever an era of order? Were were things ever you know beautifully platonically orderly as they were in ancient Greece when everything kind of went along smoothly? Although they forgot about the fact that you know a huge proportion of the population didn't even get to vote there, did did they? I mean, what about yeah, I mean, I think that disorder is more the norm and the order is more the interlude. I mean, I certainly think that that's um, that that's the case. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the, the, the time, my, I start remembering things from the 1970s, sort of from actually about the time of like sitting around in the dark in yeah. um, the winter of um, 1974. And, and I'd say really, when you think about it, that's the period of the bit of the 90s. Um, but even if you, you can't get really much further than that, because as soon as you get into the 21st century, you're running into 9-11. Yeah. Um, and then we're into Iraq and, you know, a few years on, we're into the financial um, crash. So I think that we, sh we should think that disorder is the way things are more of the time. Having said that, I do think there are some particularly hard Times yeah. to use my thing that we're we're experiencing um, at the moment, and I think at the centre of them are these set of energy difficulties. Yes, both the legacy of fossil fuel energy or the ongoing—it's not just the legacy, but uh, the, the the difficulties with fossil fuel energy. The fact that the energy transition can't be that um, quick, but we actually need it to be quick for um, yeah. climate um, reasons, and then the way that interacts um, with Russia's position in the world, yeah. uh, and the fact that Russia's power comes from its energy resources yeah. and all that is quite, I think that, that that's a, that's more than just normal disorder. That's a, a higher level disorder. But I mean, I wonder to what extent it's, a, you know, it, 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 it's a condition of mind, you know, the way in which it's sort of perceived. I mean, those years, the, the early Blair years between 97 and 2000, when it was all, you know, cool Britannia and all the rest. I mean, there did seem to be a sort of a, you know, a, a, a kind of a coherence that, that was there and we sort of felt reasonably good about ourselves. Don't you think it was there then a bit? As I say, maybe, but it was a short period of time. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm not even sure that Blair had a, such a strong sense of that. I mean, if you look at then, I mean, in a way I always thought in Kosovo, he found a purpose that he hadn't got, and that was 1999. Yeah, they didn't really know what he was doing domestically. He kind of handed it over to Gordon. Yeah, um, Gordon Brown. So, I mean, yes, it wasn't the scale of the difficulties that have come since in um, in um, many ways, um, but I think it can be romanticised. Yeah. Oh well, there are some of us that kind of you know it wouldn't be half bad to go to go back to that, but. Um... You can't go backwards, you have to go forwards. Well, look, Helen, thank you so much. This is Helen's book. Go out and get a copy, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. It's published by Oxford and available from all great bookshops and websites. So 
Helen, you're coming to the end of a, a long academic year. Yeah. Um, so you've got a restful summer ahead and the possibility of another book. You've got another a few more ideas up your sleeve, yeah? I hope so. Okay. Thank you very much, Matthew. Well, thank you very talking. much, Helen. And thanks everyone for tuning in and we will see you again in the autumn. So good evening. Bye. Thanks. Bye.